You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel uh, through your spirit that your word does go forth and does not return void but accomplishes that for which it is purposed to accomplish. And Lord, for ransoming us, Lord, we take for granted uh, your call in our lives. And Lord, we pray that not only would we be grateful for that which we have received through your cross, but that we would take it to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I thought I'd just take... um, Sunday to talk about some of our ministry uh, partnerships, and this morning I want to talk about Rwanda. Uh, We can uh, have a, this is also one of the times where you can ask me anything that's connected to Rwanda. Um, You know, some people may have a a question, Uh, the General Convention is meeting right now in Austin, Um, definitely keeping Austin weird, Uh, and... um, um, and, uh, and, of course, I was at GAFCON, and Rwanda plays a significant role in that, so we can talk about that toward the end if you'd, if you'd like. But let me read from the book of Acts uh, to talk about how Christianity first came to Africa. Uh, obviously, uh, Jesus lived in Africa. Where did Jesus live in Africa? Egypt, right? Remember during the slaughter of the innocents, the Lord said to uh, Joseph, Take Mary and the baby Jesus and get thee to Egypt. And so uh, Egypt is where uh, Jesus would have taken his first steps, where he probably would have spoken his first words. Uh, And the Africans take this very seriously. Uh, And so uh, you'll often hear people in the African church talk about Jesus as uh, an African because of the time that he spent there uh, with Mary and Joseph. But the gospel, going forward to Uh, Africa happened this way. Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he wrote... That's such an understatement. A a road in the Middle East is a desert place. How about that? And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? This road actually does skirt down by the Mediterranean, so that explains that. Philip and the eunuch, and uh, both down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, 
and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. The word of the Lord. Now, I do think it's safe to say that on the day of Pentecost, there were Africans there that took the gospel back to Africa. But here we actually have a a specific instance in which the gospel came into Africa and landed in what part of Africa? Ethiopia, which still has a very strong ancient Christian presence uh, through the uh, Ethiopian um, Coptic church. Uh, They're monophysites, but we won't get into that right now. But uh, they're still there, and uh, Christianity began to grow and spread. But it was really slow going. Until the 20th century, there were very few Christians in Africa. Now, at one point in time, there there were a lot of Christians, especially in North Africa. There's a great irony. uh, If you ever get the opportunity and go to Carthage, which, I mean, who doesn't? So you go to Carthage, and on top of uh, the big hill is a huge cathedral that has been built. And you can actually, that's the final resting place of St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis, who was a French king, uh, went off to fight the Crusades, and um, he was captured on his way back by Muslims, and he promised that if he let, they let him go, he would never fight in the Crusades again. And like a good Christian, he lied. Uh, And he went back and got caught again. And so they said, you're just going to hang out in Carthage for the rest of your life. And so he dies in Carthage. And you can go, uh, his reliquary is there. I mean, I think bits and pieces of him have been distributed, but most of them is still there. And um, along the top of the nave in Latin, and it says, surely next to Rome, Carthage is the greatest city in Christendom. Now, what makes that ironic? There are almost no Christians in Carthage, right? North Africa used to be the hotbed of not just of Christianity, uh, but also of voices of orthodoxy. So saints like Augustine, right? He was Athanasius. Uh, So Egypt and Carthage and Hippo and places like that uh, were major Christian centers. And so Africa actually had a tremendous influence on the shaping of Christianity and uh, in, uh, in even uh, today, I mean, we owe a, a lot, uh, especially to people like St. Augustine. The Reformers often appealed to Augustine when disputing with uh, the Church of Rome because Augustine is considered a doctor of the church, which is a really important title uh, for uh, folks who have gone on uh, before us. So Christianity existed, existed in Africa uh, really since the beginning But then what happened? Right, uh, Islam came along and they they swept uh, to the West and uh, and that pretty much spelled the end of Christianity. But before we blame it totally on the Muslims, North Africa had its Christian problems too. Especially in Egypt, there was a man named Arius who came up with a bad idea of who Jesus was. And that is that Jesus is actually not the eternal son of God. He is God's son, but he's not co-equal with the Father. He's a little bit less than God. And believe it or not, that was at one time an almost majority position held in the Christian church, except for a few people like Athanasius and others who stood firm and said, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. 
And so you had that controversy. And then Augustine over in Carthage and Hippo, which is Algeria and um, Tunisia, uh, had a big controversy with the Donatists, who were so obsessed with the purity of, um, of the church that anybody who was, a, especially when it came to clergy, and so if you were baptized by a clergyman who was a heretic, your baptism didn't count. Which meant what? Everybody's in big trouble, right? I mean, at some level, I mean, it's, it's, it's bound to happen. And so that being the case, uh, Augustine fought against uh, the Donatists. And the Donatists were a major force in the church as well. But, um, and then there are innumerable desert saints that would sit on hilltops and, you know, St. Anthony and did wonderful things. But, but North Africa especially contributed a lot. But after, uh, after Augustine and the Donatists, things really started to slide uh, to the extent that there were um, then um, almost no Christians uh, in Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, until the Church Mission Society. There were two big mission societies. The Church Mission Society, CMS, which was started by Charles Simeon, the rector of uh, Holy Trinity Cambridge, who I talk about a lot, wonderful godly man, and it's very funny because I was talking to a guy one time and he said, I just want to model my ministry after Simeon. And I said, well, that's easy as long as you're single and you have gobs and gobs of money at your disposal. Then you can have a ministry just like Simeon. Simeon started sending missionaries all over the world, especially to Indian and Africa. And you can actually, the other uh, SPG, Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, is the other one. And I'm going to make a political statement here, a church politics statement. You can look at the map of the Anglican Communion, and I can tell you what non-English-speaking churches were founded by CMS and which ones were not founded, those that were founded by SPG. Those that had CMS missionaries, almost without fail, are solid and evangelical and thriving. The SPGs aren't doing so hot. I'll just let you look that up. You can look it up on a map. But it really wasn't until the 20th century that Christianity began to take its foothold in Africa. At this point, uh, local African religions were still uh, the indigenous faith. Uh, there, in fact, um, is, is actually experiencing a resurgence, uh, what, what we would call voodoo uh, in Africa. But in the 1920s, CMS, the Church Mission Society, set up some medical missions in Uganda. And they realized, you know what, we're, we're helping people uh, physically and doing a lot of really good things, but we really ought to be doing more preaching. And so what they began to do is to set up preaching stations throughout uh, what was then called Buganda. Uganda, Rwanda, eastern, I mean, sorry, uh, parts of Kenya, parts of Tanzania, and uh, Burundi. And... They set up these preaching stations, and God began to move in an incredible way. So the East African revival, where they really believed that it started, it started with the medical missions in Uganda, but it was actually in Gisenyi in Rwanda where it really exploded. And quite literally, nations came to know the Lord. When it happened... Many people were critical uh, of the revival that broke out because revivals are uncontrollable. 
if you can control it, it's not a revival. Uh, and things did get, I mean, there were some unruly things that happened. There were some things that maybe could have been managed better. But guess who's in charge? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees fit uh, to do that. So the East African revival happened, and it was a huge, huge, huge thing. Uh, and some will still argue it's still happening today. Um, it certainly lasted from about 1930 until the 1970s. So um, the things that it was marked by, this will all come as a shock to all of you, personal conversion, conviction over sin, repentance and prayer. Those were the hallmarks of it. There was no ingenious, I mean, you see what's happening there. There's no, we got a jump castle for the kids and we got, you know, uh, we got arts and crafts over here and we got, you know, Christian yoga over in this tent. It's just preaching and prayer. That's all they're doing. That's all they're doing. And so they're simply pouring out the word like water, and God is transforming it into one. Now here's the great sadness about it all. This great revival sweeps over East Africa, and then you have not just one genocide in 1994 in Rwanda, you have multiple genocides. So what happened was that the Belgians were running Rwanda. At this point, just things being the way that they were, you can actually go visit World War I battle sites in Rwanda where the Belgians were fighting the Germans on Lake Kivu. Have you ever seen the African Queen? That's it. That's, that's Rwanda and Uganda, fight the Belgians and the, and the Germans. Uh, so when the Belgians were in control... There are two primary tribes in Rwanda. There are the Hutu and the Tutsis. The Hutu is the majority. They're about 70% of the, uh, um, of the population. The Tutsis about 30% of the population. And it's almost impossible to tell them apart. There are some things that you can physically, looking at them, tell them apart. For instance, Tutsis tend to be taller. Um, uh, they have a dance named after them, the Watutsi. Um, their facial features. Well, I mean, bottom line, the Belgians, the Belgians believed in this crazy myth that the Tutsis were descended from the Ethiopians and pointed back to this story in Acts chapter 8 and said that they're the more refined race. But actually, genetically speaking, the two most closely related tribes in all of Africa are the Hutus and the Tutsis. And that even caused problems in the genocide because even the genocidaires couldn't figure out who was who. So the Belgians sided with the Tutsis and left them in control of things. And when the Belgians began to pull out, the Roman Catholic Church specifically sided with the Hutus. And when the Belgians pulled out in the 1950s and began to give more self-governance to uh, the Rwandans, the Hutus took out what they felt was their angst regarding the oppression that they had suffered at the hands of the Tutsis, which historically speaking I would question. And in the 1950s, a huge genocide broke out. Not as big as the one that we experienced in 1994, but it caused people like Sam Magisha's mom and dad to flee to Uganda. That's why Sam grew up in, um, in Kampala. There's, this is us on the gorilla track. Um, I'm the one on the right. Sam's the one on the left. Uh, some of y'all remember Sam, uh, who was with us. 
Uh, but Sam uh, was born in Kampala, but it was a difficult time for him because he had a Rwandan name, and the kids in Uganda made fun of him. I'm going to tell a story on the bishop, which I think is hilarious. When he was uh, about 13, 14 years old, he and some boys were walking home from school and saw that there were some other boys swimming in a lake. There are lakes everywhere in Uganda. And uh, they said, how's the water? And they said, the water's great. You should come in. And so the boys stripped their clothes off and jumped in the water. And the boys who were in the water got out of the water and stole Sam and his friend's clothes. And so a couple hours goes by, and they're stuck in the water, and they need to figure out a way to get home. And along come some other boys who say, how's the water? And Sam and the boys say, it's great. Well, you know what happens next. Sam was clothed. So Sam grew up. Sam grew up in, in Uganda. Uh, Archbishop, now Archbishop, Mbanda grew up in Burundi in a refugee camp. If you haven't purchased his book yet, you can do that in the bookstore that talks about that. Uh, uh, his wife, Chantal, she grew up in Burundi as well. Sam's wife, Jackie, she grew up uh, in Uganda, just north of the Rwandan border as well. Things were calm after the late 50s for a little bit, and then in the 1970s, another genocide broke out, which caused a refugee crisis. Uh, so all along the way, it was Hutus uh, aiming uh, their violence at uh, primarily Tutsis, but also any Hutus that were sympathizers with uh, the Tutsis. Fast forward to 1994. Uh, through the medium of radio, uh, Hutu power became a really big thing in Rwanda. Basically, Rwanda belongs to the Hutus. The Tutsis need to get out. There was a Hutu president, and while he and the president of Burundi had flown to Uganda to try to negotiate a peace uh, and some sort of power-sharing agreement between the tribes, uh, most likely uh, Hutu militia shot down the plane as they were flying back from Kampala. And then that evening, the 1994 genocide started. 100 days, a million people. Uh, almost all of whom were not murdered by gunfire. Uh, machetes, baseball bats, um, just horrific. Uh, many of the genocide, uh, a lot of the, the, the biggest killings uh, happened at churches. Uh, in the 50s and the 70s, the Tutsis that remained in Rwanda fled to the churches where they were able to, um, where they were able to uh, have sanctuary. Uh, that ended in 1994. In fact, some of the church officials were complicit in the genocide. Uh, two notable instances. Uh, one pastor uh, took the Tutsis into his church, uh, about 1,000 of them, and then told the Hutu militia where they were, and they bulldozed the walls on top of the people. Uh, another one, pastor got them into the church, uh, told the Hutu militia where they were, and they just started throwing grenades and, um, and incendiary devices into the church uh, to, to kill them. Um, the Belgians had created a system where ID said you were either Hutu or Tutsi. So that's how they were being able to tell who was who uh, through uh, the genocide. Uh, after the 100 days... Um, April to July of uh, 1994, uh, Sam went to find his brother. The, the way that the genocide ended was that the Rwandan refugees who had settled in Uganda organized themselves as an army, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, 
and they marched over the Virunga Mountains where the guerrillas are, and they invaded uh, Rwanda and stopped the genocide. The man who was the general of that army is Paul Gagami, who's the president today uh, of Rwanda. Uh, but of the 30% of the population that was Tutsi in Rwanda, 70% of the Tutsis were slaughtered. Um, and of course, along with them were any Hutus uh, who were sympathetic or tried to protect them, uh, and there were lots that, that, that did. Uh, there's, uh, there are monuments everywhere, all over Rwanda, over by Lake Kivu. Uh, Bishop Sam was telling me about a, a little minibus that pulled up, and the genocidaires stopped the minibus. This was actually after the genocide. This was still going on, and, that, and there's still some problems. Um, and um, they said, all the Hutus need to get off the bus. And they said, we're all, we're all Tutsi here, meaning nobody was going to sell anybody else out. And so they just torched the whole bus. And 25 people died uh, just in that one spot. And so there's a memorial there uh, to them. Sam went to go find his brother. Uh, his brother died. His brother died um, uh, liberating them. Uh, Sam, uh, I'm not telling tales out of school. This is part of his testimony really um, struggled with his faith. He grew up at St. Paul's Cathedral in Kampala. His father was the Brian Helm of the cathedral there, uh, the, the parish administrator. And uh, so he really didn't know life apart from that. He studied engineering, but he really began to question uh, where was God in all of this? How can you go from the East African revival where millions and millions of people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and have such a positive impact on a place like Rwanda uh, to the genocide that you experienced in 1994. And so began a journey for Bishop Sam uh, that led him uh, to be ordained. He trained for ministry at uh, Uganda Christian University. And then um, uh, just a couple years ago, uh, I sat next to Drayton Neighbors at a meeting, which is a terrible idea uh, because Drayton Neighbors has a wonderful plan for everybody's life. And... Um, uh, and Drayton said, hey, I've got an African bishop friend, as you do. I've got an African bishop friend, and he's got this young priest with three little girls who's right now the dean of the cathedral in, in Kigali, and he wants to send them over to the United States to do a doctoral degree. Would you be interested in that? Well, obviously, I said, we're going to have to figure this out uh, and, and pray about it. Uh, before it was all said and done, uh, then Bishop Mbanda and his wife Chantal came into town, and at dinner I said, we'll do it. We'll do it all. And rather than just bringing Sam over, uh, I cared a lot about his marriage, maintaining uh, a sense of, well, just being intact, uh, because the plan was for Sam to come over by himself. Um, but we brought Jackie and uh, Sam and the girls over. It was uh, very funny because when it was just Sam and I sorting out the details, life was so much easier and then Jackie starts asking about, like, what the bedroom looks like and, you know, the kitchen and, you know. So uh, it got a little more complicated, uh, but Sam came over, and y'all uh, probably remember Sam. And then Sam uh, ended up being elected uh, the coadjutor bishop to uh, Bishop Mbanda there in Shira Diocese. But um, uh, this is uh, Sam's consecration service. You see the mount. Those are, uh, they tell me they're dormant volcanoes. There's no such thing as a dormant volcano. Uh, and uh, that's where the mountain gorillas live. It's a really, really beautiful place. Um, 
some uh, bishops, most of which are Rwandan. The white guy is Rick Thorpe, who's a suffragan bishop in London uh, and is a really good guy. Uh, this is the service. Uh, lots of choirs. This is at the, um, at the Polytechnic College that has about uh, 1,500 students at it for the diocese. Uh, kind of a big deal. One of the things I love about the African church is Sam is being made a bishop. You see who's behind him? Jackie, his wife. She's kneeling with him. Why? It's a package deal, right? He's not going into ministry by himself. They're going in together. And in fact, she becomes head of the mother's union, and in some ways, she's more in charge than he is. Some of the things that we've been doing uh, in our partnership there in Shira Diocese, which borders Uganda as well, uh, it's pretty near Congo, uh, building churches. Uh, this church in particular um, was started. Uh, they have a wonderful ministry with lay catechists. These are lay people, most of whom have never gotten past the sixth grade, but they want to be involved in ministry. And there was a guy they sent out to this village, and uh, after about uh, six months of work, he wrote the bishop and said, I need a priest to come out to do some baptisms. And he said, how many? And he said, 200. And, uh, and then uh, a couple months later, the bishop came out and did about 600 confirmations uh, at this church. Uh, and so uh, a remarkable, a remarkable thing. One of the things that I love is that it costs about $20,000, $25,000 to build a church like that in Africa, in Rwanda. And we could give $20,000, $25,000 to do that, but the way Shira Diocese thinks is genius. They, they think in the sense of, like, we need to be able to sustain ourselves. And so they took some money that we gave them uh, as a congregation, and they built this dormitory uh, for the Polytechnic College, which I saw for the first time when I was there just this year, uh, preaching at Sam's uh, institution. And this, uh, by the building of this, this cost about a little over $100,000 to build, it generates enough income a year, not just to help with the college, but to build a church a year. So, so they're thinking uh, really wisely uh, about it. Uh, some of the other things we've been involved in, uh, this is uh, a little sports rec area at Sunrise School. Sunrise School came out of the genocide. Obviously, lots and lots of orphans were left uh, in the genocide. Uh, Bishop uh, Banda and Chantal themselves uh, have um, in total almost 30 children, uh, three of them born to them, uh, but 20-some-odd uh, that they uh, adopted. And I just want to say a word about Sunrise School, because for the longest time, Sunrise School had enormous support in the United States, because the story is compelling, isn't it? Support children of the genocide in their education. Well, that was 1994. Uh, children still need to be educated, uh, but all of the uh, orphans from the genocide uh, have, um, have grown up. In fact, Sam's cousin uh, was at his institution, and uh, she is about, um, well, I guess she's, she's mid-20s now, and she survived the genocide, but as a little girl, she has a huge scar running down the length of her face down her neck where she was slashed with a machete and left for dead when she was three years old. Um, so there still is a great need uh, for uh, faithful Christian education in, uh, in Rwanda. And so Sunrise is one of the things that we uh, support. In fact, they have a cow named Lauren. Uh, and they do. they do. And if you know Betsy Bug, uh, what's, uh, Betsy, uh, 
married Holloway. There's a cow named Betsy there as well. This is Bishop Sam and I um, at his institution. The guy in the background is the Bishop of Gesseni, where, uh, where the East African revival uh, broke out. Um, I, I mean, I could say a lot about their headwear, uh, but, uh, but suffice it to say, uh, that was us. And I want you to take a look at this, uh, and I hope that you can hear the music, uh, because um, this is... Uh, a band that has actually been over to the United States, and, um, and they simply said, let's praise God for what he's done. And they'll sing a little chorus about, uh, God has raised up Bishop Sam, and then you praise God for that. Uh, God has raised up Archbishop Mbanda. So Sam's the guy in the hat in the middle. The guy on the right is Bishop uh, Nathan Amodi, who's down in the south. And then on the left is the Archbishop of Rwanda. And so just keep that in mind about what Anglican dignity looks like. The skinny guy next to Mbanda, that's his son-in-law. The lady in the yellow, that's uh, his daughter. Get a little close-up of Sam's moves. And the little old lady, you see her holding the Bible up in the air? Can barely walk, dancing around. So uh, several thousand people uh, at that service that um, started at 9 a.m. I was the preacher for the service, and it ended at 2.30. My sermon was 20 minutes. (laughs) And then uh, finally, our our dear friends, Jackie and Bishop Sam and Archbishop uh, Mbanda and his wife, uh, Chantal. There, the diocese also has a lovely hotel uh, that you can stay at and go visit the gorillas and it really is, um, it's, it's really nice. It's something out of an Agatha Christie novel. Just nobody gets murdered. Um, so uh, a, really, uh, a really wonderful, glorious partnership. And they've been a real encouragement to me. But the amazing thing about Rwanda is that you go there, especially in Shira Diocese, and they have nothing. Nothing. So you know about the one egg project. We have those soapstone eggs that we sell in the bookstore. And if you buy one of those eggs... A child in a village will get an egg every single weekday for a year. The only protein that they're probably going to get. So um, they don't have anything. And yet when all you have is Jesus, it's all you need. Uh, they should be sending missionaries to us. Uh, it's very clear that their love for the Lord Jesus and their commitment to the gospel Uh, is unparalleled. And a lot of people will say things like, well, that's just the Africans. That's just the way that they are. But if any nation had the worldly right to turn its back on God, it would be Rwanda. How could you not struggle like Bishop Sam did? And to say, God, how could you allow something like this? And then to see elements of the church complicit in the genocide in 1994. And yet God has done a great work there, a great miracle, in that people, rather than turning their backs on God, have fallen on their knees and turned their faces toward them, toward him. And God is using them uh, in, in a mighty, mighty way. And so it is a real blessing and privilege to be in partnership uh, with the gospel, uh, with Shira Diocese. Uh, the things that I'll say about what we're aiming to do there 
is uh, the criteria that I sort of set out uh, in mission and outreach uh, of those organizations or ministries that we, we get involved in is one, that it's a Christian ministry or organization that has the gospel at its center. Uh, two, uh, it's something that we can invest in in a significant way. Now, $1,000 might be a significant investment, but you know those churches that tell you, we support 300 missionaries at $10 a pop. Right? We don't want to do that. We want to be a laser beam, not a shotgun scatter approach. The third thing is that we want it to be reciprocal. Right? We're not the great hope of Shira Diocese. Uh, it has to be a relationship. It has to be we want to be able to help them, uh, but we also want to be able to glean from them uh, what can really uh, help us. And Shira Diocese has been that. And so we're invested in all of those ways. We take at least one trip a year uh, over there. Right now I'm coordinating with a friend who is um, uh, an executive with a hotel management company to go over and help them with their hotel uh, kind of stuff. Uh, I'm uh, working with Archbishop Mbanda on revitalizing the Kigali Anglican Theological College. So the Advent actually has a hand in rebooting from curriculum to staff an institution that is going to train clergy for all of East Africa. That's no small thing. And so uh, those are just some of the things. uh, But above all, I would just say the the, the joy of of having brothers and sisters like uh, Jackie and Sam and Bonda and Chantal uh, that really are uh, dear brothers and sisters and really love the Advent. And you don't know this, but... You may not know them, but they know you. They know the Advent in Rwanda. Uh, they know that, that we're supportive of them, uh, that, uh, that we're with them, and, uh, and I hope that you know that about the, the church in Rwanda as well, is that they're standing shoulder to shoulder with us and ensuring that the gospel goes to the very ends of the earth. I'll leave it open to questions, comments, and concerns. It's wonderful that we're going to Great Britain this year. Is there such a trip that's possible with that many people to go to Rwanda? Yeah, we'll take as many people that want to go to Rwanda as uh, we'll take as many as, as want to go. I should say that. Um, one of the funny things that is because Sam's diocese encompasses the mountain gorillas, they're his parishioners. He actually has to go every year when the baby gorillas are born, and he presides over a naming service. For the gorillas. Now, they don't bring the baby gorillas down. They have people dressed up as gorillas. It's a little bit silly, but, um, but it's a big deal. It's a, and the best, thing, the best thing in the entire world is when I was over there last time, guess who was there with me? Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres was there to open the, uh, the new uh, Diane um, Falsey Gorilla Center. And, um, but what was great about it in Musanze, I said, well, Ellen DeGeneres is here. And they said, who is that? Um, so it was, it was kind of funny. Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church is recovered, and I think a lot of that comes through John Paul II and Benedict and even Pope Francis, who have finally admitted we dropped the ball on it. And I don't want to make it sound like it was comprehensive involvement, but there were definitely deep pockets. I think that they still have some work to do. There was a guy who was the pastor of a Roman Catholic parish in Kigali who there are pictures of him wearing military fatigues 
with a sidearm. And after the genocide, he left the country, and he's now pastoring in France. And I think they need to do something about, and that, that he's not the only one, uh, need to do something about that. Um, but um, they have a wonderful, I have pictures of that, a wonderful working relationship, the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church there in, uh, in Rwanda. I will say that, and I'm not an expert on this, but, but there is a little bit of a problem in the Roman Catholic Church, according to the Rwandan Anglicans, of syncretism, that there's a little bit of African indigenous religion that gets put in a little bit, that tries to coexist within Roman Catholicism, and that gets a little bit tricky. But overall, I think that the Roman Catholic Church, I'll tell you who's really exploded is the Seventh-day Adventists. They're, they've really... And, of course, the Pentecostals uh, have gotten really big as well. But, I t- when, but because the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church had such a prominent position in Rwanda, they used to be given, the bishops were given diplomatic passports and given a special place of prominence. So um, when Sam was enthroned, the prime minister of Rwanda was there. Uh, Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, was there when Archbishop Mbanda was enthroned in Kigali. And so... Um, the, Bap- the head of the Baptist Association was so upset by the preference that the Baptist Association now calls their head of the Baptist Association the Archbishop of the Baptist Association. Andrew, you mentioned the, um, the One Egg Project and our support of that. And I know we've got, got it linked on our website, but can you speak to the other giving opportunities? Um, I know that we can sponsor... Uh, children at the Sunrise School, yep. there's, there's tuition op- giving opportunities there. Can, can you speak to that? Yeah, so just in Shiradiasis, uh ways, if you wanted to give, um, uh, you could uh, do the one egg, you could do Sunrise. Certainly, if you wanted to give to Rwanda, there's, there's always a need for it. But let me say this, one of the things that the Advent is working on doing is that we want to see Shiradiasis as a self-sustaining ministry. So the idea is not that we will give perpetually until the end of time, but actually it's a four-year monetary commitment which will end at that point, but both sides, Shira and the Advent, feel... doesn't mean our partnership comes to an end, but the lump sum that we give out of our mission and outreach budget, uh, which I don't mind telling you is $100,000 a year, uh, will, will come to an end in two years' time. So there's that. Um, the Theological College in... Uh, in Kigali is, is, is a big one as well. Um, I'd like to see more opportunities like we had with Sam. How can we get um, African gospel ministers uh, over to the United States to maybe do their training at Beeson and be housed here at, at the Advent? Um, there's already a program called Bridge to Rwanda. Some of you all know that. That's for undergraduates uh, of Rwandan students who come over. I think there are two Bridge to Rwanda students right now at Samford. Uh, but it would be great to do that. And so um, if, if you were to say, hey, I'd like to support Rwanda, um, we're not going to be at a loss of, 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 what, of what to do with that. But it's also very smart, too, because one of the things you have to be careful of when you go over on a mission trip, you know, you go to Sunrise School and you see these kids playing volleyball with no volleyball net, just a rope across. And, of course, what you want to do is say, oh, well, let's buy them a volleyball net. Well, guess what they don't care about? A volleyball net. They could care less about that. If they're going to get, you know, $500 for they're not going to spend it on a volleyball net, right? They're going to spend it on something that's, that's a much higher priority. And so I've, rather than saying we want to do this, this, and this, I've really worked with 
and the Advent has worked with the diocese in Rwanda to say where are areas in which we can get involved, and then we'll kind of pray our way and, and sort our way through that. Um, there's a lot of mechanisms of accountability along the way, uh, and so I, I feel pretty confident uh, about that. Um, but our attention has turned since Archbishop Mbanda, uh, not turned, but it's expanded since he's become the Archbishop, that we're getting a little bit more involved at a provincial level through the Anglican Theological College as well as a couple other things. So, so if you're interested, Bethany is a good one to talk to, Bethany Rushing. Um, so one of the, like, Lauren uh, had a great idea. Uh, the Mother's Union is a big deal. It makes the ECW look like, I mean, ECW is great, but... I mean, these ladies are just making it happen. And uh, a lot of it is through microenterprise, and so uh, they make beautiful, beautiful dresses. In fact, the picture that you saw of Bishop Sam and I, where he's dressed in his, his the Mother's Union made those. And, and they are, and I, I've seen really nice stuff, and it competes with it. And so, you know, being able to invest to get them fabric so that these ladies can embark on a business, and so stuff like that is happening as well. Yeah, just speaking out of ignorance, but is Rwanda doing anything to prevent another genocide? Because you, yeah. mentioned, you mentioned outbreaks 50s, 70s, 90s. Yeah. That, that looks like a trend. And well, I think that, yeah, well, I mean, they're talking about it, which is part of it. Um, they're talking about it. Uh, every year, it's a really big deal. They celebrate or remember the 100 days. It's not like July 4th. In fact, the last day is July 4th. Um, it's not like they have one day that they set aside. For 100 days, the whole country goes into a sort of mourning period where the, everything just kind of shuts down. Um, that in Rwanda, I don't know how they do this. Every single citizen, whether you're rich, poor, it doesn't matter, has to give one day of service to the country a month. Picking up trash on the side of the road, mowing, you know, cutting grass, some sort of public improvement, uh, and every single citizen has to do that, uh, otherwise they pay a pretty heavy fine. So I think that Paul Kagame's government is really trying hard to let people understand that we're Rwandans, and uh, that, that the Rwandans are, are together and need to move forward. I mean, I think also just the shock of the 94 genocide checked them. Like, I just don't think that they expected it to be that brutal. But it's, it's active and it's ongoing, the acknowledgement of, yeah, it happened in the 50s, it happened in the 70s, it happened in the 90s. It's got to end with us. It's got to stop. So I think that the government is working really hard to make sure that that, that happens. One of the big problems is that some of the genocidaires, those who committed the genocide that were not brought to justice, escaped into Congo. And so if you hear about violence in eastern Congo, it's always that group. So recently they kidnapped, they killed some people who were on a gorilla trek in Congo and, and, and stole the gorillas in order to try to sell them for, um, the Euro there were some European tourists that they just held hostage, but that just happened about a month and a half ago. Kate. 
To, to build on that question, are the two tribes more integrated now in the church or the schools, yes. or are they totally yeah. separate? I've asked my Rwandan friends if there's still tension tribally, and they'll say sometimes. Like when it comes to representation on things, like there's sort of a feeling of like, well, it's time for us to have a Hutu bishop instead of a Tutsi bishop. But that's been largely, that's been largely tamped down. Um, that, and remember, so many people, Hutus included, after the 94 genocide, came back into Rwanda. And so they had grown up outside of that and brought a fresh perspective on, on what was happening. And the, again, the, the test of any democracy is what happens when Paul Kagame transitions out of leadership and a new leader comes in. I, I don't think I'm being overly optimistic to say that I think it will be fine, um, when that transition occurs. It's a perfectly safe place to go in spite of all that I've just said. Uh, and, um, and at no point have I ever felt that I was under threat except when Lauren talked me into getting onto the back of a dirt bike uh, that, that was masquerading as a taxi. Um, and uh, that's when I felt. So I, I think that it, it'll be interesting to see what happens when Paul Kagame steps down. He's a brilliant man. Uh, he's pushing 70. I think he's in his 60s. Uh, Bill Clinton set, named him as the most impressive world leader that he had ever met. Um, really impressive. Well, it's Africa. I mean, I think that that's the difficulty. And we think about it from a Western perspective. But in Africa, like uh, Museveni, who's been the president of Uganda since the mid-'80s, and I mean, that might sound tyrannical, but also having someone like that in position create stability. The problem is, is that he's not done a very good job in Uganda of making that transition possible, where my hope and prayer is that Paul Kagame is looking to say, we need to let, not handpick, but raise up uh, the next generation. And that's why I think that programs like Bridge to Rwanda, which take Rwandan students, bring them over to the states, education here, and then they're obligated to go back so they're not having the brain drain that so many other places have. And, uh, and Kigali is a remarkable city, I mean, what's happening there, and, um, and just the investment that is taking place. Uh, and it's a safe place to invest. It's a safe place to go. Uh, the infrastructure is astounding to me that they're able to do what they're able to do. So right now there's stability, but hopefully they'll be able to transition. Who would have thought we'd gotten into geopolitics today? All right. Well, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.